Our Bibles are open once again to Deuteronomy chapter number one this morning. And if you need uh, a Bible, there's one in front of you. And you'll find our text on page 136 this morning. Deuteronomy chapter one. Several years ago when my kids were trying to determine where they were going to go to college, one of the things that they had to do as part of the college application process was to complete at least one or more essays. Some of the schools that they applied to uh, didn't require an essay at all. I'll leave it to your imagination which one those were. Some of them required one. One of them required three. And when my son went to complete that particular college admission essay, the longest of the essays was this simple question, what is the good life and how does one find it? I think that's a great question to pose here today. What is the good life and how does one find it? Or more appropriately, have you indeed found it and are you living the good life? Now, if you're like most Americans, you define the good life in terms of material prosperity, right? You define it in terms of money and the things that money can buy. Big paying jobs that provide big comfortable homes and big comfortable cars with lots of leisure time, lots of recreational hobbies. But my question this morning is, is the American definition, God's definition of the good life? Is that how God would define it? I mean, given that so many who have all of those things still struggle with unhappiness, discontent, anxiety, even depression, some who have all those things are at the verge today of even taking their own life. That being the case, it seems to me that most people here and around the world are chasing after the wrong things in order to experience the good life. Deuteronomy chapter one reminds us that the nation of Israel was being led by God toward a good life. In fact, the good life that God had prepared for this people that was chosen by him to come and live unto himself as a holy people and a holy nation, a treasured possession, that good life was directly related to the good land that God has promised them. God had already been with them. He'd been with them all the way for about two years since they were liberated from the Egyptian bondage. He was leading them by a pillar of cloud during the day and the pillar of fire by night. But they still needed to get to the land that God had promised them because the good life was directly related to the good land. The problem was for the nation of Israel, not everybody saw it exactly the same way. Not everybody defined and described the good life exactly the same. Let's look this morning at Deuteronomy chapter one, beginning in verse 19. This is a lengthy narrative. We're only gonna look at a portion of it to get us started as we stand together, those that are able to honor the reading of God's word. The children of Israel had been encamped at the base of Horeb for well over a year, Mount Sinai, 
And God said, you'd been at this mountain long enough, now go and inherit the land. And the Bible says in verse 19, as Moses continues this message to his people, looking back, it's a historical reflection on what had already happened in the life of the people up to the time Moses gives this address. And here's what he says. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near to me, Moses said, and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, <clears throat> and I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eskol, and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Father, we thank you this morning for the blessing of a good life in a good place given by a good God who does all things well. Guide us now as we continue to focus on what you have done and what you want to do in each of our lives. And may these words uh, penetrate deep through the rough exterior of our life that they may produce good fruit for the glory of God. Through Christ our Lord, we pray and all God's people said, amen. Thank you, church family. You can be seated. <clears throat> Let me remind you this morning that when God made his covenant with Abraham, God promised him two specific things. Do you remember? He said, I will make you a great what? A great nation. And then secondly, he promised him that he would give him a good land. I'll make you a great nation and I will give you a good land. Now, by the time Moses speaks these words in Deuteronomy chapter one, the first promise had been fulfilled, hadn't it? Oh man, there's two million plus of those children of Israel running around following the leadership of Moses. They're already a great nation, but the land still had not been fulfilled. The people were as numerous as the stars of the heaven, but the promise of the land was still ahead of them. They were still on the wrong side of the Jordan River. Now, originally, God had led them up along the coastline, and they had encamped just south of the nation of Israel, the Promised Land, and they were to take it from the south, from the place called Kadesh. And you'll remember the story, of course. We read a piece of it here. The rest of it is in Numbers 13 and 14. But you can recall that 12 spies were sent in, one from each tribe, their purpose was to explore the land and kind of do the work of reconnoitering so that they would know how best to take it. We tend to focus on the disagreements of those spies, and there would be disagreements. 
But those 12 spies, all of them, were in consensus. They were in absolute agreement about one thing, namely that it was a good land. This is a really good place. The scripture says they came back from the valley of Eshcol, literally the valley of blessing, and they came back with a response that this is indeed a land that has been blessed. It's exactly that. It's a valley of blessing. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And the scripture says they came back carrying clusters of grapes that were so large they had to be hoisted on poles carried by two men. But they also gave a report that included not so good news. There's the presence of large fortified cities, walled cities that are frankly beyond our ability to conquer. And those large fortified cities are protected by large fortified men. I don't know what they're drinking over here, but it grows them awful big. They're giants in the land. And comparatively speaking, we come off looking as grasshoppers, which means if we try to go into this land, they will squash us like a bunch of bugs. And the Bible says the people wept aloud and they longed to go back to Egypt. And that's what's really sad about all this because for the majority of people, at that time, the good life was not ahead of them. The good life was behind them. And that's a tragic way to live. It's a tragedy to spend most of your life looking backwards all the time. Looking in the rearview mirror, trying to remember how life used to be, how good it was. But God had a good life for them. God had a good land. He'd been with them during the day and during the night. His presence was real. He'd given them his law. He'd renewed his covenant with them. He'd appeared before them in fire and smoke. The problem was that the people just didn't trust the Lord. Now, the question that we need to raise this morning is what does all this mean to us? That's the introduction to the message. Say amen. Well, what does all this mean to us 3,500 years later? Well, it means a good deal. Not so much in terms of what that actual land means to us. It's an important land, but looking at it even today, it's not the most impressive place on the earth as far as physical geography is concerned. And so what's important to us is not so much what the physical land represents. Now for the Jewish people, that land represented something very important. That land represented the presence of God. It represented God's inheritance to them. That land represented God's provision for them as a people. That land represented God's rest for them. In an era where for decades, even centuries, they'd been wandering around or in bondage one of the other. But for us today, it's not the physical land that's so important. There is what theologians here call a Christological application. Let me ask you a question. Can you see Christ in the passage that we've just read this morning? If not, we need to read it again. Because for us, the inheritance that God has, this good life, that God has for us is no longer connected to the geographical land of promise. This inheritance, this good life that God has for us is directly related to Christ. It's related to Jesus, who is the fulfillment 
of the promised land itself. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Did you see that? Say amen. All the promises of God find their yes, their amen in Jesus Christ. And that includes the promise of the land. Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's what? Offspring. And what's the next word? Say it out loud. Heirs according to the promise. Heirs to what? 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So here it is right here. Here's why this passage in Deuteronomy 1 matters to me, and here's why it matters to you 3,500 years later. What the land was for the people of the old covenant, Jesus Christ is to the people of the new covenant. Christ is the fulfillment of the promised land. Christ is our inheritance. Christ is the presence of God with us. Christ is our provision, and Christ is our eternal rest. And that's why, brothers and sisters, Christ is the key to the good life. Are you living the good life? The answer to that question depends on whether or not you know Jesus Christ. Because apart from him, there is no good life at all. In fact, that's not only the testimony of Scripture. That's the testimony of Christ himself. Jesus said in the 10th chapter of John, The thief cometh only but to kill and to steal and to destroy. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Christ is the key to the good life. But then as now, just like the children of Israel then about the land, some were saying, let's go. Others were saying, let's go back. Not everybody responds to the good life in exactly the same way even today, do they? Moses' narrative of Israel's great failure in the desert reminds us there are four critical responses to the good life God wants us to live. These responses are obvious every day. These are responses that have been made by every person sitting in the room here this morning. Can I give them to you quickly this morning? First thing we learn from this passage is that some are disqualified from the good life. Some are disqualified from the good life. That obviously was the case with this first generation who all said, no, let's go back. That testimony, dare I say it, that lack of faith disqualified them for the good life God was providing for them. Look at verse 34 of Deuteronomy 1. And the Lord heard your words and was what? Angered. And he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. Verse 39. And as for your little ones, to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness. Uh, this was God's way, like mothers today, of saying to their disobedient children, get to your room, amen. <laughs> Turn and go. 
And there lies the beginning of an additional 38 years wandering in circles in the desert right there. Called by God himself to a land that was good, flowing with milk and honey, a land of abundance. They were disqualified because of their disobedience. And what's even more tragic, even Moses was disqualified. Moses, the great leader and the shepherd, the preaching prophet among the people of God, even Moses is disqualified. That's not revealed here in our text in terms of how, but you have to go back to Numbers chapter 20 and there in Numbers chapter 20, you remember that during the wilderness years of wandering, Moses was trying to find water for his people. God told him, go speak to the rock and the water will flow abundantly. Moses was exasperated. Moses was frustrated. Moses was anxious, discouraged, and in a fit of hostility and anger, he violated the very command of God by taking his staff and striking the rock in a fit of anger calling attention to himself in the process. And the Lord said, you will not lead them in, watch it, because you did not believe me. It wasn't the anger that kept Moses out, it was the lack of, the lack of faith. That's right. And the lesson here is very important. What's the lesson? It doesn't matter the litany of good that you've done. It doesn't matter the kind of record. It doesn't matter the successful track record that you bring to God. No one is exempt from the consequences of disobedience before a holy God. And here's the thing. As far as living the good life, here's the thing that all of us need to remember. We're all disqualified from living the good life. Really, sin disqualifies every single one of us, doesn't it? What does Paul say in Romans 3.23? One of the most quoted verses here at Hillcrest. For all have sinned and what? Fall short. Just like these people on the precipice of the promised land. They were right there. They could see it. And yet sin kept them out. All have sinned, the Bible says. God makes a way for us by his grace. He makes a way to be forgiven. He makes a way for us to enter into the kingdom of God by faith. But most, even some here today, get right up to it, man. You can see the land. You can see the kingdom. You can hear the gospel. You can see a vision of the glories of the kingdom and the inheritance that Christ died to provide for us. There are people here today that can see the kingdom through the preaching of the word of God, but they turn away from it and they remain stuck where? In their disobedience and in their lack of faith and they remain disqualified from entering and living the good life in the kingdom of God. Then as now, it's true. Some are disqualified from the good life. But then notice also there are those who try to manufacture the good life. In other words, they try to get there on their own. There are people even in the room today maybe trying to get to God on their own, by their own strength, according to their own abilities. Can I just say this morning, it didn't work then and it doesn't work today. For Israel, it happened almost instantly. I mean, in the wake of God's verdict on the people's disobedience, look at verse 41 of Deuteronomy 1. 
Then you answered me, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it was easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, Moses, say to them, do not go up and fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be what? Defeated before your enemies. You know what we call that? Salvation by achievement. Salvation by achievement, and it does not exist. So what, and here's the irony. It's the way most people think they can find the good life. Hey, hey, hey. They're trying to find a good life by a route that in fact is non-existent. You try to earn it. And is this not the way we define success in Western America, the United States? Listen, we, we've let Hollywood and Wall Street dupe us into thinking that the good life can be acquired and then we turn around and apply that philosophy to spiritual matters. We think we can go up and we think we can do it on our own. I'll just be honest enough. I can be good enough. I'll be sacrificial enough. I'll be religious enough. But can I say this morning, it's all wasted effort because even the best we try to offer, the Bible says, is as filthy, rotten, rejected rags in the presence of a holy God. I'm talking the very best that you're able to conjure up is still filth to God because you have a sin problem. And that's what disqualifies you. That's why you can't earn it. In order to earn it, you would have to be as good as God. That's the only way. Anybody here that good today? Anybody that holy? Anybody that righteous? Well, of course not. Nobody would admit to that. And that's why this is a fool error. No, the Bible is clear. It's consistent, Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Or how about Ephesians 2? For by grace are you saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God, not of works, not of works, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, these Israelites tried to manufacture the good life on their own, and Moses couldn't be more clear as to the result. Verse 44, the Amorites came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down. I just love that. I mean, it's bad, but I love the language because it, it creates a picture in our minds that everybody in here can understand, right? They chased you like a swarm of bees. I ran over with my lawnmower several years ago an in-ground nest of yellow jackets. And I was praying for the Lord to just take my life right then. I mean, I came off of that thing with it still running and in forward motion. The lawnmower literally went into the forest behind my house as I scampered for cover. Because I didn't want to get beat down by a bunch of bees. That's what happened to these children of Israel. They tried to manufacture their way into the kingdom and were nearly destroyed in the process. And the same thing happens when we try to enter the kingdom on our own apart from the grace of God. 
The good life cannot be manufactured. It can only be received as a gift. Oh, that was a good place for an amen. You missed that softball. You can't manufacture the good life. It can only be received as a gift. That's right. For by grace are you saved through faith. Some are disqualified for the good life, from the good life. Some try to manufacture the good life. Some believe God for the good life. And that's the right response. This was God's great desire for this generation of freed Israelites. He wanted his people just to trust him. And God had proven that he was trustworthy. Isn't that right? Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, split the Red Sea, water from a rock, bitter water became sweet. I mean, there's all kind of miracles that you can read about in the book of Exodus, just like one right after another. Manna falling from heaven every day. Go out and gather as much as you want. Uh, just, you know, don't do it after you've gathered it up once because it gets rotten and it starts to stink. But I'll give it to you every single day. That manna was the living presence of God among his people. So God had proven that he could be trusted, that he was a trustworthy God. But I'm telling you, by the time we get right here in Deuteronomy chapter 1, Trust, what's the old saying? Trust is as scarce as hen's teeth. I'm told hens don't have any teeth. And trust was just that scarce. That being the case, there was one who believed God. And you remember what his name was? Caleb. Caleb, look at verse 35. Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. And to him and to his children, I will give the land on which he has trodden because he has wholly followed the Lord. Now, let me just go ahead and say, because I know some of y'all are already ahead of me. He wasn't the only one, was he? There was another, Joshua. Both of those guys were two of the 12 spies that went in, but these were the only two that came back saying, let's go up in the strength of the Lord. But Caleb was the most aggressive in terms of urging the people to follow the Lord and to take the land. And his, his statement to the people in the wake of all the murmuring is one of the most positive and courageous statements that you'll find uttered by anybody in the entire word of God. It's Numbers 13 and notice verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. Man, you gotta love that. Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to take it. Translation, we can do this, people. If God is for us, who can be against us? See, Caleb had this unshakable determination to enter the good land and to live the good life. And he wasn't going to let go until God blessed him with it. He's like the angel that wrestled Jacob, right? You remember when, the, when Jacob wrestled with the man of God from heaven? And the most famous line out of that is Jacob, who says to the angel, I will not let you go until you bless me. That was Caleb. 
He's just got this unshakable determination. And it's reflected here in Deuteronomy 1. I'm sorry, Joshua 14. Joshua 14 and 6. And Caleb said to Joshua, this is after they'd already gotten into the land. Caleb said to Joshua, so now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. Verse 13, then Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Watch it, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. That's just bold. Caleb goes up to Joshua and said, you remember what the Lord said? I won't mind right now. And Joshua said, it's yours. Gave him one of the most historic places in the world today, Hebron. Oldest city in the world, many people say. My prayer is that God would give all of us that inexpressible resolve to enter, to experience, to enjoy in full the good life that God has promised to those who love him. It reminds me of that old hymn some of y'all remember we used to sing. You remember that old song, I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delights, things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I am resolved to go to the Savior, leaving my sin and strife. He is the true one. He is the just one. He has the words of life. I am resolved to follow the Savior, leaving the paths of sin. Heed what he saith, do what he willeth. Still, I will enter in. I will hasten to him, hasten so glad and free. Jesus, greatest, highest, I will come to thee. Isn't that a great old song? They could have been singing, the Joshua, Caleb and Joshua could have been singing that 3,500 years ago, and that's the key to the good life. I am resolved to go to the Savior. I am resolved to follow the Savior. The key to the good life is coming to Jesus with faith and following him for the rest of your life. For by grace are you saved through faith. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, are you with me so far? Say amen. Some are disqualified from the good life. Some try to manufacture the good life. Some believe God for the good life. But then here's the pinnacle. Some, having believed God for the good life, lead others to the good life. And you know what? This was Joshua's critical responsibility. Like Caleb, God had declared that because of his obedience, Joshua would be second of that first generation to enter the promised land. Those would be the only two. But Joshua's role, even though Caleb was more aggressive in his urgency, Joshua's role would be even significantly larger, wouldn't it? Look at Deuteronomy 1 and 38. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Did you see that? Say amen. 
and then over in Deuteronomy 3, verse 28, but charge Joshua, and he shall put them, Israel, in possession of the land. Isn't that interesting? You know, with the exception maybe of the access that we have to God through Jesus Christ, I mean, the greatest privilege of living the good life in God's good kingdom is being able to connect to God and to worship God and to have access to the eternal God of heaven and earth. Wouldn't you agree with that? That's the greatest privilege of all. Because at one time we were on the outside, foreigners, aliens, enemies of God even. But now we have access to God. Now we can talk to God. Now we can listen to God. Now we are filled with the presence of God. But you know what, outside of that, I think that the highest privilege of the people of God, those of us who are living the good life, is leading other people to the good life. That's the highest privilege of all. And we lead others to the good life by leading them to Jesus. Joshua led them to the good life by leading them into the land. We lead people to the good life by leading them to Christ. And let me just make this statement here today because I, the statement is true. Some do it, not everybody leads others even though they've entered the kingdom. But it's the responsibility of every Christian disciple to lead others to the good life and to the good Christ. Really, it's the great commission is what it is. Jesus said what? Go and what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. What did Jesus say at the beginning of the book of Acts? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power to do what? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the world. Why? For we are ambassadors for Christ, imploring others with the message, be reconciled to God. Translation, come and join me in finding the good life, which can only be found through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me just make it clear. A disciple not only follows Jesus, a disciple leads others to Jesus as well. Speaking of that old hymn, the last line of that old song, I am resolved no longer to linger, is very telling. I am resolved and who will go with me Come, friend, without delay, taught by the Bible, led by the Spirit, we'll walk the heavenly way. Have you entered God's good life? If so, who will enter the kingdom? Who will experience the good life? Because of you. The key to the good life is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died in your place that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Are you living the good life? And are you inviting others to find it with you. This is God's eternal word. 
And all God's people said,